Welcome to Christ Chapel College, the college outreach of Christ Chapel Bible Church in Fort Worth, Texas. We hope everyone experiences what Jesus calls abundant life. So we unapologetically point to Him as the source of life and joy. If you're a college student in the Fort Worth area, we'd be stoked to connect with you. Find out more at ChristChapelCollege.org and on Instagram at ChristChapelCollege. Before we start, I want you to ask just a simple and bold question of, Lord, what do you have for me today in this? Because I don't know what you walked into this room with, but I could guess that for some of you, life feels pretty heavy, life feels pretty weary, you're getting discouraged, um, and you need something today. Or maybe life is good, but you need a reminder of how gracious our God is. So um, we're going to be specifically in Hebrews chapter 12, verses 3 through 17, picking up right where we left off um, and continue to parse through the book of Hebrews verse by verse. But before we do, I want to rewind just a bit and reread where Ben left off last week and read the first couple verses that kick off chapter 12. So starting in verse 1, it says this, Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. And then here's verse 3, kicking off today. Consider him, consider Jesus, who endured from sinners such hostility against himself, so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. I think these verses are important because they set the table for what we're studying today. Um, it's obvious from these verses that following Jesus, the Christian life, is like running a race, right? And the author of the book of Hebrews is telling us to run this race with endurance. He's saying, don't grow weary and don't grow faint-hearted. But let's be honest. Running a race is really freaking hard to do, right? Because whether it's the mile and you're running fast and hard, or it's a marathon where you're running long and far, running a race is not easy. It takes training. It takes a lot of effort and energy. And all you athletes out there training for the Cowtown know exactly what I'm talking about, right? Like you're getting your long runs in every weekend. Um, last April, I ran a marathon in Fayetteville and it was a wild experience. Um, it was a marathon that I was like really looking forward to, done a lot of training for, um, had some goals that I wanted to crush, all that kind of stuff as one does when they run and train for a race. And we get to Fayetteville, weather's looking great. And then before you know it, we're having dinner and these clouds start rolling in and things start to look a little daunting. The weather starts to drop from 70 degrees all the way to 40 and it says it's going to get down to like 30 degrees that night. And then the next day it's projected to rain and potentially hail. And so I'm like, okay, this race is looking like it's not going to be that fun. Um, and then the next morning I just tell myself, just wake up, get up to uh, dress like you're going to get out there, there to the race and just evaluate the, what the weather is going to be like whenever we get there. So drive to the race with my wife and some friends. We're sitting in the car and we're watching people get out of their cars. Their shoes are already so soaking wet. They're wearing rain jackets and trash bags because it's already raining and like drizzling. And I'm like, I don't want to do this anymore. The motivation that I once had to do this, this race that I was really excited about, immediately became this daunting thing. And I was like, I'm out. I want to give up. And my wife quite literally kicks me out of the car and she's like, you've come here. We traveled eight hours. You're running this dang race. So I get up get to the starting line, rain starts to slow down a little bit, I get a little hopeful, but then race kicks off within 400 meters, literally, I've been running for like 30 seconds, 
torrential downpour out of nowhere. It was like, yep, set the tone for the race. This is going to be gnarly. And I was like, okay, within a mile, I'm going to give up and I'm going to go find an In-N-Out and get animal style fries and a warm blanket. And that's how I'm going to spend the rest of this day. But I am not running this dang race. Um, and so things just got really daunting and really hard. I ended up running the race. Um, and yeah, it, it was tough. And more of that will come out later. But Jesus, following Jesus, the Christian life is the same way, right? There's a lot of analogies and illustrations that can be drawn from running and the Christian life. Because at some point, following Jesus starts to look really daunting. Things are going to get really uncomfortable, and you're going to wonder, how the heck do I go from here, right? You're going to get weary. You're going to get defeated. You're going to get discouraged. Um, Like Ben said last night, when we follow Jesus, we acknowledge that we are singing about truths and clinging to certain promises that we might not actually see on this side of eternity, and that makes things hard to do, right, when you're in the moment and you're discouraged. So I want to ask you this question. It's an honest question, but do you find it difficult to believe in the truths and promises that we're singing and that we're talking about when life starts to get tough? Do you find it hard to trust and hope and believe when you're discouraged? And do you ever sing these songs on a Sunday and have a hard time believing what you're actually singing? Because I do. There have been multiple seasons in my life singing that same song, that tremble, singing the lyrics, Lord, you call the storms to still, but at the same time, feeling like I'm just drowning in the waves. Or singing that, Lord, You silence fear, but right now, I just can't shake this overwhelming anxiety and doubt in my soul, right? And when we find ourselves asking those questions, which is honest, and you should, and you should acknowledge that that's what's happening, and we feel weary, and we get discouraged, it's perfectly normal that we start to ask the question, man, is this really all that worth it? Is it really worth staying in the race for? Because all I want to do is give up. It's raining on me. It's hailing. My legs are on fire. I just want to throw in the towel. Because the reality is, we all get weary. We're all going to find struggles. Things are going to be tough. We lose hope. And I could guess that for some of us right here, right now, the light at the end of the tunnel only seems to be growing dimmer and dimmer. So what I'm saying today, and what I want to offer to you, is that we have a gracious God, and that our weariness, our struggle to keep going, is actually evidence of a gracious and loving Father working in our life. And what if I told you that our weariness is actually evidence and opportunity and invitation to experience the grace of God and to grow in godliness, to look more like Jesus, the goal of the Christian life. Um, And I want to highlight the big difference between running a literal race and following Jesus. Running a literal race, you depend on your own strength, right? Like in that race that I ran in Fayetteville, I was relying on my training, that I was physically fit enough, but then as soon as that torrential downpour started, I then had to rely on my mental toughness, right? I'm depending solely on everything in me to get through to the finish line. The Christian life is not about depending on your own strength. It's about depending on the strength of Jesus and his grace and his mercy and his kindness and his love and letting him equip and empower you in your weariness. So that's where we're going today. That's what we're tackling. Um, And we're going to pick up in verse four and start jumping in. Verse four says, In your struggle against sin, you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood. And have you forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons? And he quotes Proverbs three. My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord nor be weary when reproved by him. For the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. Um, We'll stop right there. By the way, if you're a note taker, now's your time to shine. We'll have a lot of notes that you can take. Um, 
Let's look back at verse four. He says, in your struggle against sin, you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood. And these quick verses, we're going to see a few things. We're going to see some gentle reminders and then some cautions for when we're in the middle of our weariness and we're feeling discouraged and defeated. The first reminder that I think we see is he's reminding us to shift our perspective, to take a step back. He's giving us a slight reality check, right? Um, He's saying, in your struggle against sin, you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood. He's saying, okay, your struggle is valid. Things might be hard, but you're not dead, right? You haven't died yet. Um, So this first reminder is to shift our perspective. Let me start with this way. Like the struggle, um, following Jesus, you didn't sign up for a struggleless life, right? Following Jesus does not mean that your life is going to be hunky-dory and things are going to be easy from here on out. That's not promised at all. In fact, it's going to be really hard, right? Um, And he's saying that you haven't struggled, which your struggles are valid. Life is hard. Let's accept that. Like there are really hard things in life, but you haven't struggled to the point of death. But there is someone who did that we just read about in verses one and two. His name is Jesus, and he endured the cross. He despised the shame. He did all that for you so that you might not grow weary or faint-hearted. Basically saying, hey, remember who did go through an incredible amount of struggle, more than you could ever imagine. Took it to the cross, bore your burdens on the cross with him, nailed them there, left them in a grave, and then he came out three days later in victory over those things, right? Like, remember that. So that's the first reminder. The second reminder that we see, again, if you're a note taker, I want you to go through, um, or an underliner and you don't mind scribbling in your Bible, I want you to go through in verses five through six and highlight, underline, circle every time you see the word son in there. You should see it about three times. The second reminder that we have here is that you are a child of the God of the universe. That is something that you hear all the time in church, right? It almost seems secondhand nature to say and to hear, but do you realize the magnitude behind that? that you are a child of the God of the universe. The God of the universe, from wherever he's at, all around, looks at you and calls you son, looks at you and calls you daughter. Do you realize how significant that is and how wonderful that is and the care that is associated with that, that you are loved by a parent in heaven? Um, The first part of verse five right there is essentially saying, have you forgotten that you were called a child of the God of the universe? That's a big deal, right? And then verse six kind of echoes the same thing, but it's slightly different. Um, Verse six says, for the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. The reminder here, this third reminder, is that discipline is evidence of being loved by God and in family relationship with him. I'm gonna repeat that again. Discipline, which we're gonna put a pin in that word and we're gonna unpack that here in a second, is evidence of, of being loved by the God of the universe and in family relationship with him, that you're called, again, son and daughter by the God of the universe. All I want you to notice is that the author is really, the author of Hebrews is really making a point to hammer in this idea of being in family relationship with God, which means it must be a real important thing to remember and that we must forget it often. It's a big deal. So those are our reminders to shift your perspective that you're a child of the God of the universe, and that discipline is evidence of being a child of the God of the universe and of being loved by him. Here's some cautions that I think he's offering to us. Looking back at the first part of the quote in verse five, he says, my son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by him. I think when the going gets tough, life gets hard, our instinct and our gut has us respond in one of two ways. 
I think A, we regard lightly and choose escapism, or B, we get weary and want to throw in the towel, right? We want to give up, especially in a race. You're like, man, everything in, in me hurts. I'm going to leave this race. So he's saying, A, don't choose escapism. Escapism is this idea that when reality feels too heavy or seemingly becomes too hard to accept, we run away from it and don't want to deal with it rather than embrace it. Or we just simply become indifferent. But either way, we never actually process it. Um, a good example of this, uh, the year I graduated high school, my senior year, a month before I graduated, I get called into my living room. I'm literally studying for an AP bio exam, so it's finals, literally right before I graduate. And my parents call me in, and they're both bawling, and they tell me that they're getting a divorce. Heavy moment in Nathan's life. Um, and I vividly remember feeling all the hurt, all the confusion, all the frustration, the anger, all of these emotions swell up in me. I start gushing in tears, as one does when you get that kind of news. Um, and my first instinct was to get in my truck and just go drive. And so that's what I did. I didn't check on my little brother. I didn't talk things out with my parents. I just left the house. I escaped and I went driving. I went driving way too fast, had the music blaring. I was yelling the entire night, never came back home. I'm just dealing and feeling all this hurt, anger, frustration, confusion, all of it. And then I come home at like 7 a.m. and I get my backpack and I go to school. And at that point, I just acted like nothing ever happened. I didn't tell any of my friends about it, mainly because I felt shame and embarrassed by it. I didn't let anyone know what was going on. I just acted like things were normal. And I chose not to deal with a really big, weighty moment in my life, right? And I chose escapism. Then I came up to TCU. That, after that summer, I did, worked at a uh, camp or something like that, and then came to TCU, and I ignored everything that was going on back home, everything that was going back home. And it was unhealthy, and it was toxic. So I, I regarded my situation lightly. Escapism is so easy for us to do, right? Like we escape from bad things literally all the time. It's one of the gut instincts. But as we're going to see later, the discipline of the Lord isn't even actually a bad thing. It's actually a very, very good thing for us, and we choose escapism from that too. Um, so don't choose escape escapism. The second caution that we see here is to don't grow weary and choose to overfixate on your situation. Um, overfixating on our situation and becoming so anxious and overwhelmed by it that we then become paralyzed by it, right? And that our f then our first instinct is to just flat out give up. Um, the more that we overfixate on our situation, the more room and space that we give room for lies to step in and tell us to give up. Like, think about a race. Um, anyone running the Cowtown in a few weeks? Literally nobody? Okay. Oh, a couple hands. There we go. At some point in your race, or if you've ever run a race before, you are going to get to a point where you're running uphill, or it's mile 11 of your half marathon, or mile 20 of your full marathon, whatever you're doing, and your legs are literally going to be on fire because you've been running for over an hour and a half, right? That's a long time. Um, your lungs are going to be just like pounding out of your chest. Your mind is literally going to tell you, stop, I'm on fire. I need to give up right now. And if you overfixate on the fact that your legs are on fire and that you're running uphill right now, you're never going to finish the race. Your body's going to tell you to stop and you're just going to walk off the course and you're going to go eat yogis, right? Um, what you fixate on is the fact that, no, I've trained for this. I can do this. I have a goal. I'm going to finish this dang race. I'm going to focus on the fact that this uphill battle, literal uphill battle, is going to have to end at some point. I can see the end of the hill and you focus on that thing to keep you going, right? You don't overfix it on your situation. All that's going to do for you is produce, you know, you throwing in the towel and giving up. So 
those are our reminders and those are our cautions. Don't choose escapism and don't choose to over fixate. Um, let's jump into verse 7 here. We're going to read verse 7 through 11 all in one ch- chunk. And I think this passage right here has a lot to it. I think it offers the unique point of view of what the author is getting to right here and kind of gives us our, our big idea of what discipline actually means. That's what we're, we're going to start unpacking it and what it means to be disciplined by the God of the universe, by a perfect parent and a loving father. So let's jump in. It says, it is for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons. Again, a reminder that you are in family relationship with the God of the universe. For what son is there whom his father father does not discipline? If you are left without discipline, in which everyone has participated, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. Besides this, we have had earthly fathers who disciplined us and we respected them. Shall we not much more be subject to the father of spirits and live? For they disciplined us for a short time, as it seemed best of them, but he disciplines us for our good, that we may share his holiness. For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant, but later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. Cool. Let's unpack that word discipline. When you see and read the word disciplined, I want you to think of the word training. So if you need to write that down in the margin of your Bible, do it. Um, But in the original Greek, this word discipline is translated literally to training, right? And it's always used in the context of training up a child, of educating a child, of raising a kid and instructing a kid on how to be a functioning member of society, right? And so that every time you hear that um, word discipline, I want you to think of the word training, which again is really fitting for this idea that the Christian life is just like running a race. If you were, if you decided right now, man, Nathan's talking a lot about running a race. I kind of want to go run a marathon. And you haven't trained one bit to run a marathon, you will literally die when you try. The first person who ever ran a marathon way back in like the Greek-Roman era, he was in this army. His army like won this incredible, big, monumental battle. And he's tasked with running back and telling the city the news that they won. It just so happens to be 26.2 miles away. He runs all the way, gives the news, and then drops dead. The first person that ever ran a marathon died. Think about that. Fun running trivia for you. Um, (laughs) And so it takes training, right? Discipline, this word training. You have to continually build up to be able to do that, right? Those of you, again, training for the Cowtown, the literal four of you that are in here, um, have been progressively building up your mileage each week, right? You started at mile one or maybe a quarter of a mile, and each week you've been tacking on another mile, right? And you're progressively disciplining yourself to get out the door and to do some training and be build up the fitness to be able to run a half marathon or a full marathon, right? That's how it works. You don't just go out and do it unless you're, you know, some sort of superhuman. It takes discipline and it takes training. So he's saying it is for your training that you have to endure. It is for your training so that you can have an opportunity to grow in your godliness, to share his holiness, to look more like Jesus. Again, the goal of the Christian life is to look more and more like him, right? More of him, less of me. That's the goal. How do I do that? You need training. And training often takes the form of discipline of the Lord, right? And the discipline of the Lord, he's saying, isn't necessarily going to feel pleasant. Not pleasant in the moment, at least. Um, 
before we kind of unpack a little bit more of that, I want to highlight the idea again. I want to go back because I think it's important, this idea that we are in family relationship with the God of the universe. Um, God the Father, this perfect parent. In verse 8, he's saying, if you're left without discipline, then you're basically an illegitimate child of the God of the universe. He's saying, basically, that means that you're not actually called a son and daughter. Think about it. Each of us have been raised by someone. And that person who raises us is instructed with, again, making us a somewhat decent human being on earth, right? And so they discipline us as it seems best to them. He's saying everyone participates in discipline. Um, I used to work with uh, fifth, sixth, and middle school ministries here at Christ Chapel. So a lot of like 10 through 12-year-olds and some 14-year-olds. They're a blast, a lot of energy. But part of my job was working with a bunch of the parents, right? And a lot of my ministry was to the parents, which is wild for me because I was like a 23-year-old talking to like 40-year-old men. Um, But something I quickly learned is that parents, and you can go ask any parent in the room that's in here today, like Ben, um, parents will tell you admittedly that they have no clue what they're doing when they start parenting, right? That they're just getting all the best practices, all the tips and tricks that they can from everyone who's done it before them, and they're just figuring out Okay, how do I do this? I'm just going to do what I think is best. That's what this is saying. All parents raised us as it seemed best to them, but we have a perfect parent, God the Father, who does know what he's doing and disciplines us for our good so that we might share in his holiness, which is huge. Now, I say that, and I say, like, we all have this experience with discipline, but some of this room might not, right? Like, I'm going to acknowledge the fact that some of us might have had absent parents, and we don't know what it's like to have a caring and loving and gracious parent involved in our lives. That's a very real thing. We either had absent parents in our life, or we had parents who did discipline us, but as it seemed best to them, and it turned out harmful, it turned out hurtful, left us with wounds that we're still dealing with today. I get that. And to you, if that is you in this room, I want you to know that you have a gracious loving father who has your best interest in mind and all he wants to do is care for you and embrace you who calls you daughter who calls you son who's in your corner know that fall into his love fall into that embrace he is a perfect parent um so we see that his discipline so that we can grow more and more like jesus right to share in his holiness And like I said, verse 11 is saying that it might feel painful rather than pleasant, right? But later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness. Um, Essentially what verse 11 is saying is that the discipline of the Lord is type two fun. Has anyone ever heard of type two fun? Literally no one. Let me introduce you to the fun scale, ladies and gentlemen. Take notes. Um, The fun scale. So in college, I used to hang out with a bunch of dirt bags and young life leaders. So dirt bags and dirt bags, they're all the same thing. Um, And when you're in the outdoor world and you're climbing and you're backpacking, you use the fun scale. Type one is it's fun in the moment and it's fun in retrospect. So you're having fun while you're doing it. And then when you look back on the experience, you're like, yeah, that was fun. So think like celebrating your birthday, think dancing at a wedding, think all the good things in life that are fun in the moment and then fun afterwards. Type two fun is it's kind of miserable in the moment. And you're like, why am I here? Like my marathon, I got to the starting line and I was like, I don't love running anymore. This sucks. I don't ever want to do this again. Why the heck am I here? But looking back uh, almost a year from now, I'm like, that was an amazing experience. That was type two fun. Like I'll train for another marathon and do that again, even if it's raining. That was incredible. 
Then you've got type 3 fun, which is seemingly fun in the moment, and then in retrospect, it wasn't really that fun. And then you have type 4 fun, which is not fun in the moment, and also not fun in retrospect. It kind of sucks. Um, so, verse 11 is basically saying the discipline of the Lord is type 2 fun. In the moment, it might feel miserable. It might be discouraging. It, you might feel defeated. But later, it's going to yield the peaceful fruit of righteousness. It's going to develop the fruits of the Spirit in your life. It's an opportunity to grow in godliness, right? It's type 2 fun. In retrospect, you're going to see— it, this happens in the Christian life and in my life all the time. It's always in hindsight where I look at my life and I see how the Lord was working in my life and shaping me and growing me, right? That's what this is saying. Um, so that's all the way through verse 11. Gives us, unpacks us with, uh, with gives us some reminders, some cautions. We, we see all of this, what discipline means and everything, but what, what on earth do we do with it? Like, what does this mean for us? How does this change my Sunday afternoon my Monday morning, my middle of the week Wednesday when life is hard. Um, author of Hebrews tells us, starting in verse 12, gives us some really practical stuff. He literally says, Therefore, in light of these things, lift your drooping hands and strengthen your weak knees. Nothing gets more practical than that when you're running a race. So like, what do I do when I'm tired? Oh, you lift your drooping hands and you strengthen your weak knees. It doesn't get more practical, right? And he says, And make straight paths for your feet, so that what is lame may not be put out of joint, but rather be healed. Strive for peace with everyone, and for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. See to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God, and that no root of bitterness springs up and causes trouble, and by it many become defiled. And that no one is sexually immoral or unholy like Esau, who sold his birthright for a single meal. For you know that afterward, when he desired to inherit the blessing, he was re rejected, for he found no chance to repent, though he sought it with tears. Um, so, the Christian life, following Jesus, not growing weary. The author is giving us two, I think, two practical, real practical things to do. He's saying following Jesus, not growing weary, first and foremost, requires grit, right? Um, endurance in a race takes grit. Mental toughness, again, at some point, the race stops becoming ab about how physically fit you are and how mentally tough you are, right? It becomes mind over matter, will over emotion of like, I'm not going to give up. I'm going to finish this dang race that I signed up for, right? I've trained for it. And it becomes this idea of like, I'm not going to let my screaming body that's telling me I'm on fire right now give up, right? I'm going to remember that there's a reward at the end of this and that I've trained for this, um, and I think to get a little more practical, what grit actually looks like, and one of the best ways to practice grit in following Jesus is to fight your flesh. And here's why I say that. It's interesting that he puts sexually Im sexual immorality and the story of Esau right next to each other. Um, Esau's story, which is a story way back in the book of Genesis, kind of first p few pages of the Bible, um, has nothing to do with sexual immorality. Esau's story, as it says, he has a birthright that gives him an inheritance and a blessing. Basically, he was the firstborn son of this guy named Isaac, and he had a brother named Jacob, a younger brother. Um, but Esau got this birthright that says, hey, you're going to inherit all the promises of my family. You're going to have my inheritance. You're going to be the leader and authority of our family. A great thing to have, right? One day, he goes out on this hunt, and apparently it was pretty gnarly. Um he comes back, he's starved, he's thirsty, he's razzled, like things were tough, 
And so he comes back home and he sees his brother Jacob cooking a pot of soup or something. Um, and he says, Jacob, I literally am about to die. I'm starving. Give me some of your soup. And Jacob is like, okay, I'll give you some soup, but it's going to cost you something. Just being an annoying younger, younger brother, honestly. And J- uh, Esau's like, okay, I will literally give you anything. I'm about to die. I need some sort of fuel, some sort of nourishment, or I'm going to wither away and die. And Jacob's like, okay, give me your birthright. And Esau's like, deal. Like that birthright, I can't eat it. Like you can have it. I don't want that right now. What I need is fuel. So he literally makes this rash monumental decision based on his hanger, right? Like he's so hangry that he's like, yeah, I don't care. I need food. And he gives up this blessing, gives up this promise, gives up something that is very valuable based on his flesh, based on his desire and his emotion, right? And that's paired right next to sexual immorality because Sexual immorality is another great example of just following your emotions and your fleshly desires, right? Think, I can't think of two greater examples than that and honestly being hungry, right? And so the Christian life is all about fighting your flesh, fighting your desires, which are more often than not, if not always, at war with the desires of the Spirit, right? And what is actually going to produce godliness in your life. So we fight the flesh. The Christian life following Jesus isn't about being led by your emotions. It's not about being led by your desires. Your authority is the word of God. It is Jesus. It is the Holy Spirit's work in your life. That is what you let your actions be based out of. Not will, not flesh, not desire. So that's what he's saying. Gospel grit, following Jesus takes grit, and that looks like fighting the flesh. The second thing that we see uh, not growing weary takes and is a huge part is uh, community, right? So community is this thing that we preach all the time. And you're like, okay, I get it. I need friends. Um, I'll say this. Biblical community, I really do believe if you're not in biblical community, it will change your life. Biblical community is rich. There's depth to it. And if you're not in it, get in it. Um, But more specifically, what this is talking about and what I want to highlight or just something that I can give you that's really practical. What does this look like? Again, on my Sunday afternoon when I'm with my roommates or whatever, I think it looks like normalizing depth in your relationships. Think about that for a second. What does it look like for you to normalize depth in your relationships? Do you even feel like you have depth in your relationships? Because I feel like it's super easy for us to just small talk our way through life, right? You come in to your house full of three or four roommates, right? However many people you live with. It's been a long day. You walk in the door. They say, what's up? You're like, sup? Or they say, hey, how you doing? And you're like, I'm fine. And you don't, and maybe you've had the worst day ever, but you choose not to talk about it, right? Or you choose not to check in on someone just because it feels awkward or weird. Especially, honestly, I think this is even hard for if you are all professing to follow Jesus, right? Like how awkward does it feel to ask, hey, how's your relationship with Jesus going? Like, what's hard about it? How can I help? It feels weird, and we don't do it. And so we stay in this surface level, small talk kind of relationship, and we don't have depth. But following Jesus requires depth in our relationships. How is your relationship with Jesus going? How, what's hard about it? What's challenging? How can I help? So I think that's a big part. Um, I'm not sure if this is going to show up on there, but I think it, following Jesus, not growing weary, requires a third thing, and it's a really important thing. I think it requires grace, right? The difference between, again, running a literal race 
and life with Jesus is running a literal race. You can depend on your own strength. The Christian life, life in general, you cannot depend on your own strength. If you try, you're going to fail. Things are going to be really sucky for you. So you've got to go to the God of the universe and just seek his grace. He gives you moment by moment, equipping and empowering grace in every situation you could ever ask for. All you need is ask, right? And so I think it requires grit, community, and grace. Um, And start landing the plane. If discipline is for our benefit, which I think it is, it's opportunity to experience the grace of God and grow in godliness, then we should embrace it with excitement and motivation, right? And I think James, which is the book right after Hebrews, in his second verse says, Count it all joy, brothers and sisters, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that this discipline produces steadfastness. He's like, hey, when you're weary and you're discouraged, shift your perspective again. And remember, this is a joyful thing. You get to look more like Jesus. You get to experience more of his grace and experience the depths of his grace, right? This is a good thing for you. Count it all as joy. Um, But I could guess that some of you in this room are like, okay, how? I'm in the moment. I'm weary. How the heck is that joyful? I'm discouraged. I'm downtrodden. I am defeated. What do I do right now? I want to read verse 3 again as a final encouragement to you. You see, consider him, consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. I want you to circle that word consider. It can be translated and understood in two different ways. The first way is to translate it to carefully calculate. And the second way is to remember. So for anyone in this room that's like, man, I come to church all the time, but I'm not sure I actually have a relationship with Jesus. Um, that's not something I'm sure I'm into, or that's just not something I'm willing to do, or you don't, haven't put your faith in Christ yet. I want you to carefully calculate what it means that you have a perfect, gracious, loving Father in heaven watching over you. I want you to carefully calculate what it means that the God of the universe, that perfect Father, wrapped himself up in skin, came down to earth, met you right where we were all at, in our brokenness, in our sin, lived a perfect life, died the death that we should have died because the wages of sin is death, died that death for you so that you wouldn't have to, left everything in the grave, he walked out in victory and now offers you life and life to the full forever in a relationship with him. Carefully calculate what that means for you and how that might change your life. There is life and life to the full in a relationship with Jesus. And it's sweet and it's good. If you are a believer in this room, I want you to think of that word, remember. Remember him who endured the cross on your behalf, him who bore your burdens on your behalf. Remember that and keep pursuing Jesus. Keep going. Keep running the race. Um, I'm going to land on, I'm just going to read you uh, a poem by this guy named Jim Branch. Um, who's another big Young Life guy. Um, The first four books, just to kind of set the stage for you, though, of the New Testament, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, are all about Jesus' life and ministry. And they are filled, I almost said that word really weird, with stories of people that are defeated, people that are discouraged, they're downtrodden, they've lost all hope, they're weary, and they're filled with these stories of Jesus meeting them right where they're at, in their discouragement, in their weariness, in their defeat. And there's one story in particular about a woman, a woman who has been bleeding and wounded 
all her life for years. Seems like there's no hope for her. This is a poem. It says, something is terribly wrong within her. A long, slow bleeding of her heart and soul has been her constant companion for as long as she can remember. So many things she has tried to make the bleeding stop or to make her feel better for at least a moment, but the long line of solutions have failed her. So here she stands, even worse off than she was before, desperately grasping for wholeness or healing or even a glimmer of hope. Maybe Jesus, maybe he will be able to stop the bleeding of her weary heart. If only I can get near enough to reach out and touch. So she makes her way. And when she finally grasps for him and touches him, the bleeding stops, the wound is healed, the broken is made whole, and relief streaks down her tear-stained cheeks. Freedom, finally. He turns and looks. His eyes meet hers. She falls to her knees in fear and confusion. Daughter, he tenderly whispers to the depths of her heart and soul, indescribable intimacy in the middle of a crowded street. Go in peace, and with a gentle smile upon his lips, knowing this is what she most deeply longs for. Be freed from your weariness and your suffering. And indeed she is. No more bleeding, no more grasping, only love. And in the midst of her weariness, her bleeding, and her healing, I am reminded of my need for the same, reminded of the open wound of my insecurity, of my grasping for value and affection, of my own momentary weariness when only one offers the touch that will bring wholeness and freedom so there is an invitation for us to a new life of indescribable intimacy and freedom with the one who calls us his son and calls us his daughter with the one that whispered us into being and longs for wholeness and freedom for us if we will let go of all the ways of our weary heart and just reach out for the edge of his robe So whether you're weary today or whether you're just now realizing your need for the beautiful Savior that is Jesus, I pray that you have the courage, just like this woman, to reach out. Just say, God, I need help. Jesus, I need you right now. I am weary and I'm hopeless. I need your hope. I need your grace. Let me pray for you. Father, You're good, Um, and you love us, and you're kind to love us the way that you do. Lord, would you remind us of your graciousness uh, this morning, Lord, Um, and remind us that you are with us in our weariness. You You are with us. You're sitting in the mud with us. You're in the pit with us, Lord, and you offer us your strength and your freedom, Lord, um, and your endurance. Would that give us hope? Would that give us peace? Would that encourage us, Lord? And would we seek your grace moment by moment, day by day? Um, And God, even as we sing these songs that are coming up, Lord, and we sing that, these truths that you are in the fire with us, that there is joy in trials of various kinds, Lord, would you actually make that true? Would you actually help us believe that, Lord? Would it go from notes on our pages and in our Bibles and in our head, Lord, to just deep-rooted belief in our hearts that you are good, you know you have our best interest in mind, and that this is a good thing for us, Lord, and that our weariness is actually opportunity to experience your grace and your love, God. Remind us of that. We love you, Jesus, and we need you. It's in your name that we pray. Amen.